0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music, and
1: more. Lee Miller lived an exceptional life. Or, as her son Anthony thinks about it, she lived many different exceptional lives. Lee Miller was a Vogue cover girl in America before moving to Paris to study photography with her lover, the surrealist Man Ray. In the Second World War, Lee became a war correspondent, reporting from the front lines and photographing the liberation of the Dachau concentration camp. As the Allies took Germany, she was famously photographed taking a bath in Hitler's bathtub, her combat boots muddying his pristine white bath mat. After the war, Lee reinvented herself once again, This time as a gourmet chef, specialising in surrealist creations like green chicken and pink cauliflower breasts. Anthony Penrose is Lee's only child, from her relationship with the English painter Roland Penrose. Anthony grew up on the family's idyllic farm in the East Sussex countryside, where his parents entertained a host of artists and eccentrics, including Picasso, who became firm friends with little Antony. But Antony's relationship with his mother was strained as she battled alcohol and depression and the scars of all that she had witnessed. And it wasn't really until after his mother's death that Antony came to appreciate how extraordinary her life and her talent had been. Anthony went on to write an acclaimed biography of his mother called The Lives of Lee Miller. And he's in Australia as the curator of a survey of his mother's photographs, currently on show at the Heidi Museum in Melbourne. Hi, Anthony. Hello. When you were growing up, how much did you know about your mother's life before you came along?
0: I knew very little about her life. I knew that she took pictures because I often saw her doing that. She would bring out her camera and photograph people who were around us and that sort of thing. But I had no idea of her previous history because it was something that she refused to talk about.
1: She was born in Poughkeepsie. Is that how I say that wonderful word? And yeah,
0: Poughke- Poughkeepsie. It <laughs> she is, was yes. born in
1: Poughkeepsie in New York State and and she was expelled from various schools as a teenager. What sort of mischief was young Lee getting up to?
0: Just about everything. She was very, very rebellious. Uh, she had had a, a shocking incident of child abuse, um, not from her family, but uh, it it really affected her extremely badly. And I think this made her at odds with the the rest of the world. And she was just this wild, free spirit that nobody was ever going to control. And of course, that doesn't go down very well with schools.
1: What did her father make of this rebelliousness in, in his daughter?
0: I think in a way he rather liked it. And certainly he encouraged her because he made sure that she understood she was every bit as good as any other boy and played all the boys' games and helped him in the darkroom with his photography and took an interest in engineering things and so on. And so actually she grew up with this very broad outlook on life and she wasn't going to be in, inhibited and pushed into doing girl-only things, you know.
1: So was it her father who first introduced Lee to photography?
0: Yes, indeed. Unusually he had a, a an amateur darkroom and he specialised in taking stereoscopic images and also images of engineering marvels and things that were really exciting to him in that day. I mean, he was a pretty useless photographer, but actually technically he was good because it was always sharp, it was generally well exposed, and developed in his own little darkroom under the stairs in the house.
1: I think after her final expulsion from school, Lee had her first trip to Paris, which was a place she <laughs> fell in love with and and which would come to mean so much to her. But uh, her father went and, and dragged her back to America while she was still a teenager. And she was at art school in New York when she was nearly run over. Who stepped in to save her?
0: Well, she was wandering through New York, dressed in the clothes that she'd brought back from Paris. So she looked a bit kind of more elegant than usual. And She stepped out in front of a truck, and she should have been run over in that moment, but a man grabbed her and hauled her back with a split second to spare, and she did the girly thing. She fainted in his arms, (laughs) and he looked down and saw this incredibly beautiful face dressed in this Paris couture and thought, that's what I'm looking for. Who was he? His name was Condé Nest. He was the owner of Vogue magazine and <laughs> Vanity Fair, and literally within a few weeks, she was on the front cover of Vogue, March nineteen twenty-seven. She was not yet twenty years old.
1: <laughs> See, that story is extraordinary enough to just be the sum of one's life adventures. Really, that's a remarkable way to to enter modelling. You say she was was extraordinarily beautiful. What did she look like at that age?
0: Well, she was quite tall for her for her age. And she was very clean-limbed, slim, blonde, with just a lovely figure, but a very, very beautiful face. There was something not classically beautiful about her, but just something that was really engaging, attractive. And I think when you look at her face, it speaks already of the intelligence that she carried.
1: So from that chance, fainting in the arms of Condé Nast, she begins her modelling career. Did she enjoy modelling?
0: Not really, no. But it was, it was a brilliant way of learning photography because she was photographed by some of the greats of the day, including Edward Steichen. And it seems like she used every single session as a kind of tutorial because she would be ducking around to see what was going on behind the camera and how they were lighting it, how they were posing her, how they were treating the whole composition and everything, and every time she was learning something. And she had this incredible inquisitive nature, the curiosity that was overarching. And I think people like Steichen rather
1: liked that, Mm.
0: and they enjoyed showing her how it all worked. In
1: 1929, Lee travelled back to Europe, and she decided that she really did want to be behind the camera. She wanted to be a photographer. How did she find a teacher?
0: She was well current with what was going on in Europe because people like Steichen and the guys that he associated with, like Stieglitz, they had all the publications from Europe. And she kept on seeing these works by this photographer who called himself Man Ray, who was American. And she met people who knew him. And Steichen gave her an introduction and his address, and off she went.
1: Just what, turned up uh, at his house?
0: Eventually she she travelled around Europe a bit and then she turned up at his apartment in um, in Paris and uh, she was really crestfallen because the concierge said, no, Monsieur Manolet has gone on uh, his holidays because it was the beginning of August, you see. And um, so she was really sad and she went round to a bar where she knew that he sometimes hung out just in case he might be there. And sure enough, he walks in and she goes up to him and says... Um, Hello, I'm your new student. And he says, No, you're not. I don't take students. And anyway, I'm going to be a Ritz for my holiday. And she says, Yes, I know, and I'm coming with you. <laughs> and that was the beginning of that amazing relationship. She
1: must have had a convincing way about her, Antony.
0: She was bold, yes. <laughs> I, I don't mean to say that she was pushy because she had this incredible intelligence and this intuition and she knew when a chance was worth taking and she knew how to take
1: it. What sort of photographs did she take when they were together in those in that period with Man Ray?
0: There's a very definite division with her photography because she had to do the commercial work. So there's fashion and stuff that you can imagine she needed to do to earn the money because very quickly she had her own studio. But the images that really endure are the ones that she took just wandering around Paris. And it's like she used her camera like a cookie cutter. When she saw something interesting, she would just snip it out of life, make it into a picture and give it back to us. So we've got a picture of a lot of... Rats' bottoms sitting on a (laughs) stick and their tails are hanging down, and you know, strange examples of coiffure and strange examples of architecture and things like this. And it's all, it's often very witty, and it's this kind of surreal way that she has of looking at the unexpected and looking at the things which are the finding the marvelous in the ordinary. (laughs) And she was so good at that.
1: She she left Man Ray and left Paris and returned to New York where she began her own photography studio. What kind of clients did she have?
0: Well, to begin with, she had to do all kinds of boring stuff, pack shots for advertising and in-store promotion and stuff like that. But she brought with her a kind of Parisian chic which put her way ahead of the, of the other American photographers at the time and suddenly she found that she was getting the jobs. And you've got to remember this was the... Really, the the the, you know the part of the recession was going on at the time. Any commercial stuff was very very hard to get, and then that developed into portraiture, starting off actually with uh, Broadway artists, uh, actresses, and so on who wanted really arresting images to send to Hollywood casting directors, and then she got society portraits, and then she got. All, all kinds of things that kind of went with that, people wanting their pets photographed and so on. <laughs> and it, it, it turned out to be very successful. She she made a go of it.
1: Was mm. she also seeing herself <laughs> as, as an artist in addition to that kind of commercial work? Was she having exhibitions by this stage?
0: She had had an exhibition in New York at the Julian Levy Gallery and then she had work in other exhibitions as well. So, yes, she always saw herself as an artist, but then... As an artist, she always saw herself as somebody who needed to earn her living and that was where the commercial work came in.
1: While she was in New York, she was (coughs) keeping up this busy social life of parties and poker games and theatre and art openings and she had many friends and admirers. One afternoon she rang home to ask if her mother had liked an Egyptian man called Aziz that she'd introduced her parents to. Why did she want to know that?
0: (laughs) Because she wasn't going to admit to it, but she'd married him that morning (laughs) and secretly in in New York. And um, everybody, you know, there was a sort of ripple of shock, horror. Even the most broad-minded couldn't get their heads around the fact that she'd married an Egyptian. And my goodness, you know, in, in America of that time interracial marriages was really, really (laughs) quite extraordinary. And so there she was again as a pioneer right
1: out in front. I mean, I hope her mother said yes before she realised that she was either giving approval or disapproval to her new son-in-law.
0: Well, she, what she said was, well, I only met him for an hour or two and I thought, yes, he, he did seem a really nice man. And Lee <laughs> said, well, I'm glad you like him because I married him this morning.
1: Well, I mean, beyond the fact of him being Egyptian and, and what that meant at the time, he does seem a slightly kind of curious choice for a husband. He wasn't an artist. He was a businessman who'd, who'd come to New York on behalf of the Egyptian National Railways. Why do you think Lee married him? He certainly
0: was not an artist in his own right but he he did have an understanding of art but the most important thing was that he was he was a good person he had huge integrity he had great kindness and great compassion and was immensely supportive of Lee and for her that was more important than anything else because he was solid and reliable and the kind of lovers that she'd had up to this point were very unreliable and very volatile and so on. So here was this really loving, kind, solid person. And I think there was a degree of irresistibleness (laughs) about that.
1: They went back together to Egypt to to set up home there. What sort of life did, did she live in Egypt with Aziz?
0: Well, to begin with, it was wonderful because he was wealthy and so she lived in this great big house with servants and she never had to worry about anything. And then very, very quickly she found that she was getting incredibly bored because... The expatriate society was composed mostly of British women who were really incredibly dull. You know, their (laughs) top conversation would be, the bridge game last night, or did you see the polo, or shall we go duck shooting with the men next week? And that kind of... You can imagine it just made her go nuts. And she solved the problem by making long-range excursions into the desert to... to to do photography excursions like that. And it was very risky because the cars only had two-wheel drive, they didn't have good navigation systems, and off they went. And she came back with the most extraordinarily brilliant photographs of things that she found. And it seemed like Egypt, I think, must have been a surrealist country (laughs) It was created by a load of gods about 8,000 years earlier, <laughs> uh, and just specially for her because certainly she made good use of it.
1: What sort of images stand <clears> out to you that, that she took while in Egypt? What kind of photographs? Well, we see
0: her at her most surreal because there was no art director to satisfy. And so when she goes to photograph the pyramids and what she does is she climbs to the top of the pyramid and photographs its shadow stretching out over the land. And it's like the, sh- the influence of the pharaohs stretching out over the, the land and the people beneath them. And it's so eloquent, it's so moving. And everybody else will stand on the ground and take a picture of the pyramid from ground level. No, she took a photograph of the, sp- of the hole that it makes in space <laughs> and the shadow that it left behind. It's that kind of thing. She's always finding these strange and wonderful images.
1: How did she first meet the man who would become your father?
0: Well, after about four or five years, 1937, Aziz, immensely kind and generous, realised that she was pining for her friends in Paris. So he gave her an airline ticket to France and she set off with her maid and eventually got to Paris. And when she arrived, one phone call to an old friend revealed that there was a big fancy dress surrealist ball on that night in a very posh house near the Etoile. And off she goes, dressed in, in ordinary clothes because she didn't have time to make up a costume. And when she arrives, there is this rather quiet, shy British painter called Roland Penrose, who had dressed himself like a beggar and painted one hand and one bare foot bright blue. And he took one look at Lee and he described it as being struck by a thunderbolt and he was never the same again.
1: (laughs) They began a a love affair which at first was conducted mainly by letter. What are those letters (laughs) like, Anthony? Antony? Well, we've
0: just published them in a huge, great book called "Love Letters Bound with Gold Handcuffs," and it is really very, very touching because it was a long-distance romance, exactly conducted by letter. And sometimes the letters didn't get through, or they were delayed, and there was agonizing wait. Oh, answer me, write to me, please, please, and sort of pleading with her. And it was very revealing because they chatter away about their friends and their artist friends and what they were doing and things like that. So we have this extraordinary record of not only their love for each other but their life and their times together.
1: They had this extraordinary set of friends, including Picasso. What did Pablo Picasso make of Lee when he first met her in 1937?
0: Well, he was blown out by her beauty and he actually painted her six times à la Arlesienne, like a woman from Arles. So you can see references to the Arlesienne um, costume uh, that she's wearing. And he he really gets her because he gives her this fabulous quality of of brilliance. Um, of, she's got this sunshine yellow face for the, the brilliance of her intellect and the warmth of her personality. And there are many other references to her as well. So it's really quite wonderfully beautiful, the way that he summarises her personality as well as her appearance.
1: The artistic appreciation between them went both ways. I mean, she made many artworks of Picasso, in a sense. She took many photographs of him.
0: Yes, yeah, she shot over a thousand pictures of him, starting right then and continuing up until oh, just a couple of years before he
1: died. Well, How did she portray him? What sort of figure does he, is he in, in her photos of him?
0: We can see how much she loves him because they're always very affectionate and she's always getting him so he's, he's looking good and he's looking, you know, looking masterful and extraordinary, as he was. He was just not an ordinary guy to meet. And she's, she portrays this really accurately, I think, that he was, he was just more than a personality. <laughs>
1: By the outbreak of the Second World War, Lee had left Egypt and Aziz and was living with Roland in London. What role did she take up with Vogue at the start of the war?
0: Well, she became a freelance photographer because Vogue were faced with the problem of many of their men photographers being called up for military duty, and she filled that gap. Um, She had the most wonderful editor, Audrey Withers, who recognised immediately her talent. And put her to work. And to begin with, she was photographing incredibly boring things like frocks and handbags and shoes and stuff like that. And then she got out in the street photographing fashion in the street because the blitz came along and Vogue Studios were bombed out. So she had to photograph on location because otherwise there was no light or was nothing. And so we see these beautifully dressed elegant lovely women standing against the background of utter destruction that was London at that moment
1: mm. so vogue was running stories on on the blitz alongside fashion what was the magazine like in those war years
0: the initial purpose of vogue was to con- to contribute to raising morale and just make sure that people were still interested in what seemed frivolous which was fashion but it wasn't because it was very important that that people maintained their standards and maintained you know the 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 idea that they were not beaten and cowed and also there was another version there was another aspect to this which was America was not yet in the war so many of Lee's pictures at this point even the fashion pictures contain wartime references, which is to remind the Americans what a beating we were taking and how much we'd like them to enter the war and help us.
1: Well, once America did enter the war, Lee, because she was an American citizen, was able to become accredited as a war correspondent for Vogue and then embed with the armed forces. Where did she first head to Europe as a war correspondent? Well, she was
0: in Europe a couple of weeks after D-Day and she went across to report on a tent hospital in Normandy, which was just back of Omaha Beach where the fiercest fighting of the invasion took place. And here was this tent hospital that was still going absolutely flat out because just up the road there was the battle for saint Lo. And she photographed the surgeons working under most extraordinarily improvised conditions, yet achieving amazing results. She photographed the wounded. She photographed everything that was going on there with a very, very penetrating eye. And then she wrote. And up to this point, she'd barely written anything that was longer than a shopping list. But she turned in 10,000 words and about 35 rolls of film – which actually began her dominance of Vogue features for the next 18 months.
1: So this first encounter with human carnage, the, the horror of war, did she want to do more after that first experience in those field hospitals?
0: She wanted to do everything that she could to contribute to the war effort because she knew so many of her friends in France were suffering under the Nazi invasion, and people that she loved dearly, like Paul and Noosh Eluard, nobody had heard from them. They'd disappeared. And she just wanted to get in there, fight back the Germans, and see what she could do to help.
1: So at that point, it would have been very unusual, perhaps not possible at all, for a woman photographer to actually photograph combat. How did Lee end up being involved in photographing a real battle as it was unfolding?
0: It was strictly forbidden for women to go anywhere near combat zone, but the, the area that they sent Lee to was supposed to have been what they call pacified. But actually, nobody had told the Germans that, and they were occupying a fiercely defended fortress at the entrance to the port of San Malo. And this was dug into solid rock, tunneled into this outcrop of rock that commanded the port. And they... Siege lasted about six or seven days. Lee was there for five of them. And she actually walked into this full-scale battle. And from the moment she arrived, she was photographing these incredible scenes and writing about them because... The, they hurled infantry assaults against this impregnable fortress and she was watching people that she'd been joking with a few minutes before being cut down by machine gun fire right in front of her. And it was, it was horrific and she was, she was there, she was part of it and unflinchingly recording it all for us.
1: She survived that battle and, and arrived in Paris on the day of the liberation, which must have been an extraordinary time, and reunited with friends, including Picasso.
0: Yes, she, she went round to Picasso's studio, because she knew where everybody was, you see, banged on the door and he opened it and nearly fell over backwards. And he hugged her and he kissed her and he said, C'est incroyable. It's incredible. The first Allied soldier I should see is a woman, and she is you. I mean, not even Picasso could get his head around that quickly.
1: <laughs> There's a wonderful photo of them, I imagine, must be taken around that time of her in her army uniform and him looking like the that cat that's just eaten the cream.
0: Absolutely. He's looking so adoringly at her, isn't he? You know, that's the whole thing. And that was taken in Picasso's studio at the time of the Liberation. And we're not sure who held the camera, but it might have been Robert Kappa. This is Conversations with Sarah
1: Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au/slash conversations. So, Anthony, Lee was in Paris at the liberation, but she didn't hang around. She quickly headed east into Germany. Was she assigned to a particular military unit, Anthony, or how was she getting about?
0: Well, she made friends with the 83rd Division and that was a good choice because they and the 101st were the guys who were really doing the stuff that she wanted to see, which was penetrating into Germany. She switched into several other units, but the 83rd were kind of like her favorite people and they fought their way. They were were among the first units that got into Germany and she was there along with them very quickly as they crossed the Rhine. Then she began to understand what had happened to all of her friends who had gone missing from Paris, all of her Jewish friends who were not there when she arrived at the liberation.
1: Well, she was at Dachau the day after it was liberated by American Mm. soldiers.
0: It was the morning after. That afternoon, previous afternoon, there had been a firefight, but the, the, uh, the troops wouldn't let anybody in until they were absolutely sure the place had been cleared. And so very, very early the following morning, Lee and her buddy David Sherman went into the camp and the scenes were completely, absolutely, utterly horrific and it is utterly the most awful images and on, on, on documentation of, of that kind of thing.
1: Were those photos published at the time?
0: Only one was published in British Vogue. And this was a source of great contention because Lee wanted them all published. He wanted everybody to see what had happened and make some justification for the war in itself. But the British Vogue, they just published one. American Vogue, on the other hand, they published a great many. And I think for many Americans, this was the moment they suddenly discovered why they had been fighting in that war
1: taken shortly after that is a famous photograph of <coughs> Lee in Adolf Hitler's bathtub. Can you describe mm-hmm. that, that photo and tell me the story of how on earth she came to be there?
0: Well, Lee and Sherman always knew that the most important people to make friends with were the signalers, and the signalers tipped them off that they'd taken this place in Prinzregentenplatz, Munich, uh, which was of interest, and the reason it was of interest to the signalers was because it was Hitler's apartment and it had all the telephone wires. But it was of more interest to to Lee and Sherman historically, and so they got themselves down there. They bluffed their way in, and suddenly they found that they were in a fully functioning apartment, which was probably the only building in in the whole of Munich that still had coal, so it had hot water, and there was this bathtub with clean towels, soap, hot water. And Sherman, he said to me, we hadn't had our clothes off in three weeks. It was more than we could resist. And he said, Lee hopped in first. And then we had the idea of taking the picture of her. And that's the photograph that we have today.
1: It's a really <coughs> striking picture, but almost, I don't know, it kind of does your head in. She's there, beautiful, in this pristine white bath tub, the muddy combat boots in front of her, and then this photograph of Hitler at the back of the tub.
0: Those two inclusions in the photograph are the actual key to it, because the photograph is an image that was taken by Hitler's revolting personal photographer called Heinrich Hoffmann, and it was the key Nazi propaganda photograph that was all over Germany with, with the line, Ein Volk, Einreich, Einführer, Gross Deutschland. One nation, one people, one leader, great Germany. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, sitting that photograph on the side of the tub was a marvelous, marvelous insult. Mm-hmm. Um, but the key really to the photograph The boots, because the morning of this day, those boots had carried Lee around Dachau, and now she's stamping the filth of that place into Hitler's nice, pristine bath mat. And so she's not sitting there in the tub as a guest in his house. She's a victor, metaphorically grinding her heel into his face.
1: Shortly after that photo was taken, Germany surrendered and the war was over. How hard mm. was it for Lee to adapt back to normal life?
0: It was nearly impossible. Lee had wanted the war to be fought to deliver what they regarded as the brave new world, a society where people were treated well and fairly, and, and poverty and hardship and suffering was, was a thing of the past. But she travelled widely, First she went to Denmark, then she went to Vienna, and in Vienna she was at the Princess Wilhelmina hospital where she witnessed babies dying because the black marketeers had stolen all the drugs and there was nothing to treat these poor children with. And then she, everywhere she went, she witnessed streams of refugees and displaced people trying to get back to countries if they still had countries to get back to. And... It was this dreadful displacement and the suffering and the hardship and the brutality of it all that just seemed to go on and on and on. And there was no sign of the brave new world anywhere. And I think it was a very, very awful moment in her life that all the suffering, all the destruction had been for nothing.
1: Mixed up in that, do you think there was also a a loss of the adrenaline that must have come like it did for so many soldiers, living every day not knowing if it would be your last, the kind of camaraderie that exists between people in wartime, that must have been in and of itself something hard to leave.
0: That kind of life does very sharply define everything for you and suddenly when those objectives are no longer there, yes, you do hit a flat spot. But what was worse, much more worse than anything else, was the fact that she was suffering terribly from what we would today call post-traumatic stress disorder. And there was, there was no understanding of it at all. In those days, you put up and you shut up and you, you moved on and you medicated with a huge amount of alcohol, and that's exactly what happened to her. In
1: 1947, Lee was on assignment for Vogue in Switzerland. <clears throat> when this suddenly becomes your story too, Anthony, how did she feel about becoming a mother?
0: she actually to start with was really quite excited and uh, you know she writes she writes this telegram to Roland saying my my work room is not going to become the nursery how about your studio <laughs> you know, so she's clearly not going to make any concessions to being a mum um and then of course the reality of it all bit and she i think suffered badly from postnatal depression it was a very difficult pregnancy for us um but we we managed and when i was born she was smart enough to realize that she was not the maternal sort so she, she hired in a succession of nannies some were much more successful than others but that was really my life
1: you became yourself a vogue star very early on
0: yes i made it into the christmas issue of vogue 1947 and uh, i had what this What were you wearing? <laughs> There was shawl, <laughs> and on my head there was this ridiculous conical paper hat, and uh, which they
1: stuck in afterwards because apparently I wouldn't wear it. And, you diva. Um, yes, indeed. <laughs> you spent much of your childhood on Farley Farm, the farm that your mother and father bought in in Sussex. What did it look like?
0: Well, in those days, it was just a very simple dairy farm that was suffering from post war. Uh, shortages and so on it was all very much make do and mend um, and we had uh, we had 24 cows tied up by the neck and and that
1: was that was life on the farm where on the farm as a kid did you like to be
0: <clears throat> well anywhere in the garden but i also particularly loved the cow shed because it smelt good and i loved the snuffly noises that the cows made
1: did they have names those cows of yours oh
0: they all had names and not only that but The people at Milton knew who their grandmothers and their mothers were and who their daughters were and so on. It was this wonderful sense of intimacy that went with having a small number of animals.
1: It (laughs) was a, a hub for lots of visitors, Farley Farm. What sort of social events do you remember going on about you as you were growing up?
0: Oh, it was kind of like a perpetual arts congress, really. And during the week, I would be there alone with my nanny, Patsy, and our great big dog. And everything was peaceful and orderly. And then at Friday afternoon, the cars would start to arrive. And I generally recognized two of the people as my parents. But then there were a whole (laughs) bunch of other guys who came in. And some were much more child-friendly than others. But they normally spoke in foreign languages and got quite excited about things and waved their arms about and talked a lot. And, you know, it was just, that was just normal life for me, really. I didn't realise that they were some of the most important artists of their time. Why should I? They were just, you know, a bunch of my parents' friends.
1: Picasso made a number of visits. How did you and he get on?
0: Oh, I got on wonderfully with him because he was the most child-friendly person that you could wish for. He just had this incredible warmth and sort of magnetism to all small children and animals. And he he was just just amazing, funny, warm.
1: There was a biting incident, though, Anthony. What <clears throat> happened there?
0: Yeah, well, uh, we took him to see our great big Ayrshire dairy bull called William, and after that... Picasso decided that we were going to have a game called bullfights. Now, it was long before I understood how obnoxious bullfighting really is, but I was the bull, and so I put my horns on, and my on cue, I would rush across the room, and Picasso would be flapping his his coat like a you know like a torero, and I was supposed to knock him over, but he was so quick, he would. Jump out of the way at the last moment and I go splash into the wall. And after a while, I realized that there was something wrong with this strategy. So I waited and I watched. And when he wasn't looking, I crept up and I bit him. <laughs> on what part and of this person? On his wrist. And I just uh, anyway, he turned around and bit me right back. And uh, as aversion the therapy goes, that worked because I'd never bitten another artist seat.
1: So you you said earlier that you remembered your mother. You remembered Lee taking photographs. Was she working still for as a photojournalist or or writing or taking photos for Vogue in in that period?
0: Well, she worked for Vogue up until 1954, um, and then she quit. But she never stopped taking pictures because there was always things going on around her. And my dad, by this time, was writing the biography of Picasso, and then he wrote the biography of Juan Miro. And then he wrote about Man Ray and so on, and so Lee was often taking photographs to use as aid memoir for Roland's work or for illustration in his books.
1: Was she more as a attendant to your father's work? I mean, she'd been the star of her own story for so long. Do you think she felt a little eclipsed at that period?
0: Not really she was she was generous. she was glad to help him with his work. Because her work had suddenly become the new career she'd invented for herself, which was becoming a gourmet cook.
1: (laughs) She was a woman clearly of many passions, but how did she fall in love with gourmet cooking in later life?
0: She just had an instinct that it would be interesting to do. She went off in Paris and did a Cordon Bleu course and found that was boring Uh, But it gave her lots of technique which she could then modify to doing the kind of creative things that she really wanted to.
1: And so what sort of dishes did she come up with?
0: Well, colour was important. So we had green chicken and we had blue spaghetti and we had... Pink breasts made out of cauliflower, with a little cherry tomato in exactly (laughs) where you'd expect, and uh, it was—it was actually—it was sometimes it was quite hilarious, sometimes it was a bit worrying, (laughs) and sometimes I would dream of baked beans and poached (laughs) egg on toast.
1: I was going to say, what was it like to eat? I can imagine it looked extraordinary, but um, how was it to taste?
0: Well, it was usually delicious. Sometimes there were some notable failures, but it was usually absolutely wonderful.
1: She she did take this cooking very seriously and entered competitions. Can you tell me about the Norwegian Open Sandwich competition?
0: <sighs> oh, that went on for weeks. And she she had to research what was meant by an open sandwich. She had to research what foods were available in Nor- in Norway that could be of interest. And she did this with an incredible scientific kind of way. Then we had the tryouts. And so for days, we were eating these blasted open sandwiches. <laughs> and There was a, a, a very sophisticated American lady who arrived and was heard to say in tones of measured disbelief, I've come halfway around the world to the home of this well-known celebrated gourmet cook and I get to eat a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Anyway, we would find them weeks later curled up underneath the furniture and so on. Well, People's... after
1: all this effort, how did she, she go when crunch time came at the competition?
0: She won first, second and third prizes. It was a blind <laughs> test. She, she scooped the whole... She gave, the, gave second and third back. She wanted other people to have them. But first prize was a trip to Norway, which included a visit to a fish cannery (laughs) and and cooking in one of the smartest hotels in Oslo. And she just was in heaven over this. She thought it was wonderful.
1: She was a woman of uh, extraordinary charisma, it it seems, of exceptional talents. She'd had this huge life. But what was it like being the son of such a woman, Anthony?
0: It was difficult, very difficult, because for the first 25 years of my life, she was seriously afflicted by the results of post-traumatic stress disorder, which were alcohol abuse and depression. And as a child, it's really impossible to understand that in an adult because one minute they're normal and they're charming and they're friendly and they're funny, and then the next minute one drink too many and it's monster time. And they get to be really, really ugly. Now, Lee was never violent. She didn't need to be because she could do all the damage she wanted with words and she was good with words. But the thing was that it made me very wary of her. I avoided her whenever possible. I... And then, then when I got to be a teenager, we declared war on each other and with, with quite spectacular results. And it could have gone on like that forever. But I went away overseas for three years. And when I came back, I was married to my late wife, Susanna. And Susanna made a bridge between Lee and me. And we met in the middle of that bridge. And we suddenly found that we could be friends. And we were like two battle-scarred warriors who wished we'd been fighting on the same side. And it was wonderful. And we had just over two years together before Lee died of cancer.
1: Did she manage to get free of the drinking before she died?
0: The most incredible achievement of her whole life was that completely unaided, she voluntarily got out of the alcohol and the depression cycle. And she just self-recovered. And this is very, very rare for anybody to be able to achieve this. But she did it. It must have been like climbing out of a mineshaft using just your fingertips. Because it was the most incredible act of willpower. But she got her drinking under control. She didn't quit completely. But it no longer ruled her life. And that's actually what made it possible for me to reconnect with her.
1: (laughs) Did she talk to you, Anthony, or or your father about the kinds of things that she'd witnessed in the war, about those experiences that had understandably left such a terrible mark on her?
0: She never, ever spoke to me about it. Not, not, Not one sentence, really. Sometimes she would talk about the war in general terms, but never about her own experiences. One night, she got drunk, and she she talked to a young friend of mine who was so incredibly impressed with it that ten years later he was able to give it back to me verbatim about how what had happened when she had arrived at Dachau. Mm. But then even then it was quite an objective account, it didn't say how it affected her.
1: Well, what did your wife, your then wife Susanna, come across in the attic one day after your mother had passed away?
0: Well, after Leah died, um, Susanna was looking for baby pictures of me because we'd just had our first daughter, Amy. And so she went up into the attic and she came down, not with any photographs, but with the manuscript of the Siege of San Marlo. And I read this in total disbelief because it was this up-close-and-personal account of this infantry assault and the, the vividness of it. Was unbelievable. I couldn't work out who had written it. It couldn't have been Lee. It couldn't have been that useless drunk I'd known. And then my father dragged out of some old copies of Vogue, and there it was The Siege of San Marlo from our own correspondent, Lee Miller.
1: Were there photographs up in the attic as well?
0: <clears throat> there were something like 60,000 photographs. Oh my gosh. It, it took us a very long time. It took us, oh, about 10 years to really get them ordered and we've only recently just finished contact printing and filing the last of the images
1: so she wasn't proud about that extraordinary legacy it wasn't there weren't images she had up around the house <laughs> or that she spoke about she was proud enough
0: to keep them but she did not want to have anything more to do with them people who who know about ptsd they say that well the sufferers often avoid trigger moments and looking at those photographs would have been the most obvious trigger moments, mm-hmm. um, and so I think she recognised the historical values, so she squirrelled them away, and then when she she got absorbed into her cooking and everything else like that, I think she just forgot about it. It's a different life for her.
1: So you'd already made a kind of peace with her, Antony. But how did your sense of her change when you you know came across this extraordinary archive of of her? talent or her writing and her photographs how did it change your sense of her as a person it was a long
0: and gradual process because to start with we had to organize the photographs and then the publishers thames and hudson found out what we were doing and they commissioned me to write the biography the lives of lee miller and that gave me an advance and i used that to travel in america And I met lots of her old buddies and people who knew her at Vogue and people who fought with her in the war and things like that. And talking to them was just unbelievable.
1: How did they speak about her?
0: With great affection and great admiration. There was one guy who was a Life magazine correspondent, John Phillips. He said to me, Lee Miller was the person we always wanted to be with when things got bad. (laughs) He said, she never panicked. She always had a plan and she usually had whiskey and cigarettes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I just thought that summed it up so perfectly. Well, out of that remarkable work that, that you did, there have been books on Lee Miller's work, exhibitions, and now there's this new film based on Lee's life starring Kate Winslet, which is about to be released. What was it like for you to watch that film the first time?
0: It was absolutely traumatic because I'd been very heavily involved in the making of the film but when I saw the film it was so lifelike, it was so real I was really afraid for the people in the shots in in, in the sequences because sometimes it looks so incredibly unsurvivably dangerous and horrible and then towards the end there's a moment when Lee as an old woman comes on the screen and it's Kate of course very beautifully, cleverly made up And in that moment, there was the most incredible sensation. My complete disbelief of everything was suspended. And suddenly it was like it was for real. And Lee was really there and talking to me. And it was just this kind of overwhelming emotional moment. And then, of course, you know, it it passed. But that is how realistic the movie is for me. And it's just that it, like, completely took me over for real in that moment.
1: And is Kate Winslet believable as, as Lee Miller?
0: Utterly, absolutely utterly.
1: What do you think Lee would make of it, of having her story up there on the screen? I
0: think she would be very proud and I think she would be incredibly filled with admiration for Kate Winslet and Kate Solomon and all the other people who have put so much of themselves into making this film, because the wonderful thing about this movie is that it's a movie about a woman that's made by women. Our two key producers, Kate Winslet, Kate Solomon, are women. Our director, Ellen Kuras, is a woman. Our two writers, Marion Hume and Elizabeth Hannah, they're women, and that is what gives its its integrity. That's what makes it so utterly credible and important.
1: Hmm. You know, Anthony, I, I speak to a lot of people on conversations who've had difficult relationships with their parents. There was PTSD or alcohol or depression, and and that can really cloud how they see that parent for the rest of their life. But it almost seems like you've been able to park that to one side and, and appreciate her as someone distinct from the person who was your mother. Is that what it's like?
0: It, it is, absolutely. And The personal hurts I managed to park to one side during the writing process because I was writing alone in the same room that Lee had occupied at Farley Farm and all of her stuff was around me and it was like there was a presence there. And as I was writing, I was so often moved that tears would patter down on the keyboard of my word processor. And it was just this incredibly cathartic moment. And I I left behind the hurt and I suddenly found that I could feel a love for her and in a way I could identify her love for me.
1: And do you still live on Farley Farm now, Anthony?
0: I live on the farm, not in the old family house. There wouldn't be room for me there because that's now a house museum and it's full of Very clever people doing wonderful (laughs) exhibitions and things like that.
1: Are there still cows?
0: Yes, there are still cows, but fortunately I don't have to milk them myself.
1: (laughs) Anthony, what a remarkable woman to learn about. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.